Okay. So I'm pleased to introduce our first speaker today. I've been following his career my whole life with some interest. It's actually me. So I am going to speak about something you might say in 2017, do we need this, which is new investigational agents for HIV. But the good news is that the treatment pipeline is full. I have no disclosures. And the objectives are to identify new investigational drugs in existing classes, to also feature new investigational drugs in newer mechanistic classes, and to describe the latest clinical trial data. So as you know, today in 2017, we have 29 approved drugs for the treatment of HIV infection. But note that last year, 2016, we had zero, and there hasn't been a new drug approved this year yet. But I can tell you that 2017 and 2018 are gonna be big years for new approvals of new HIV drugs. Question, back to the phone. Which of the following investigational drugs has not completed phase three development? Is it Bictegravir, Cabotegravir, Duravirine, or Ibilizumab? So go ahead and vote. Right, thanks, Ron. <laughs> okay, interesting. So, no. <laughs> so the correct choice is Cabotegravir. Only 10% of you knew that. That's exciting, so we're gonna review that data. All the other ones that you see listed have actually completed phase three and are under assessment by regulatory agencies. All right, so the pipeline, as mentioned, is full, and we have uh, new agents in the nuke class, the non-nuke class, the protease inhibitor class. We have new mechanisms of entry inhibitors, new integrase inhibitors, and the unfortunately abbreviated maturation inhibitor class. So there's a lot to talk about. I'm not gonna cover everything on the slide. So what I did was to pick out six compounds which are either farthest along in development that you need to know because they will be approved shortly or because they offer real advantages over the drugs that we have today. So let's jump in. What do we need in the nuke class? We've had the nukes since the beginning and I think you would agree that nukes today we're comfortable with, they're usually paired with each other and they're convenient as one pill once a day. What could be more convenient than that? Well. That's where our field is going. So the candidate compound in this class is in early development. MK8591, doesn't have a name yet, is uh, EFDA, which is an adenosine analog. So this is a nucleoside analog. It's a non-obligate chain terminator, and it inhibits reverse transcriptase, but in a new way. It prevents translocation of the enzyme as it's translating uh, or tra sorry, transcribing the viral RNA into viral DNA. So now you have to learn a new abbreviation. The NRTTI is a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. So a new type of reverse transcriptase inhibitors. As you can see, it has an exceedingly long half-life of 150 to 160 hours. The significance of that is that you could dose this compound once a week 
and that would presumably be much more convenient. It's potent in the test tube um, with broad coverage of HIV-1, HIV-2, and even multidrug resistant strains. Uh, we learned at CROI this year that this compound accumulates in animal studies in lymph nodes, the vag vagina, and rectum as well. So it's getting to target tissues, and it lends itself to both low-dose and parenteral formulations. There uh, has now been clinical data presented. The first phase 1B single-dose monotherapy study in 30 ART-naive people and here's what they showed. So remember, just one dose, and you have an antiviral effect. You can see almost two log decreases up to 10 days later. So this really is a compound that could be dosed once a week. The parenteral formulations also are long-lived, and this is two different ones, one shown in red, one shown in green. These are animal data, but the reason to show you is that they got one administration, and then the compound was detectable for literally months later. So this is where our field is going, looking at long-acting parenteral formulations. And you might say, well, if it's good for treatment, maybe we could use a long-acting compound for prevention as well. And Marty Markowitz, our neighbor here in New York, presented some data at the IAS meeting in Paris that looked at this compound, 8591, versus placebo, given to male macaques weekly um, by oral gavage for up to 14 weeks. They, uh, six days after dosing, they were challenged with intrarectal shiv, the HIV model, HIV-like virus, and they followed them either till infection or till they got a total of 12 weekly challenges. And what you see in the graph is that all the macaques that received placebo became infected and none of the macaques that received the weekly 8591 ended up getting infected with the virus. So his preliminary conclusion is that this animal data would support study of this compound in prevention as well. So weekly administration, perhaps, for either treatment or prevention. Okay, that compound's early in development. Let's switch to the NNRTIs. We have a whole handful of them. What do we need in this class? Perhaps compounds with less toxicity or better tolerability. Activity against NNRTI-resistant virus would be helpful, and fewer drug-drug interactions. The compound farthest along is Duraverine. So it's an investigational NNRTI in the test tube preclinically. It is potent at low milligram dose. It is metabolized by the familiar CYP3A4, but importantly, neither inhibits nor induces that enzyme system, so has the potential for fewer drug-drug interactions. Another property is this compound has in vitro activity against viral strains with common NNRTI mutations, as you can see there, including K103N associated with efavirenz resistance, Y181C with niverapine resistance, or E138K associated with rilpivirine and etravirine resistance. So that could be a benefit of this compound. Uh, phase one data has already been published, which showed activity short-term, and phase two data compared it to efavirenz and showed comparable activity. What's new with this agent is we've now seen the phase three studies. So here's one that was presented at CROI this year, 
phase three study, multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized study. It took uh, over 760 treatment-naive people with detectable viral loads and no resistance to the study drugs. Everybody got two nukes, and then they were randomized to deraverine at what's going to be the target dose of 100 milligrams versus the comparator was boosted darunavir once daily. What we're looking at the graph is the proportion suppressed to less than 50 copies, and you can see the two lines virtually overlap with 80 to 85% of all people on the study suppressing to less than 50 copies by the end of 48 weeks. Rates of virologic failure were similar between the two arms, and interestingly, no drug resistance was detected in anyone who experienced virologic failure. Discontinuations due to adverse events were low in both groups, and lipids were slightly better with deraverine than with the boosted darunavir. So this, they concluded that deraverine was non-inferior to boosted darunavir. A companion study was presented at the IAS Paris study, so this would be the second phase three reg registrational study. It's actually identically designed, over 700 people enrolled, but they received one of two one-pill options. TDF3TC deraverine, all combined in one pill, versus TDF-FTC and efavirenz, all combined in one pill. It was a placebo-controlled study, so everyone took two pills. Again, when you look at the less than 50 data, you see virtual overlapping of the two arms, again, between 80 and 85% of everyone on the study was suppressed. Virologic failure similar between the two arms, as was a very low incidence of drug resistance. Discontinued uh, for reasons other than virologic failure against uh, numerically higher with efavirenz. And then some side effects were more common with deraverine, including dizziness, 9 versus 37 percent, and sleep disorders, 12 versus 26 percent. Once again, this substantiated non-inferiority of deraverine versus the standard efavirenz-containing regimen. Some people say, why is it being combined with TDF3TC? And you can guess it's because of the generic formulations of those. We don't know the pricing because this compound has not yet been approved, but these data are sitting at the FDA under evaluation right now. Integrase inhibitors, what do we need new in that class? We have three of them, which we use all the time. I think you'd agree activity against integrase-resistant virus would be useful, and perhaps we could use an integrase inhibitor that's more convenient. Again, what's more convenient than once a day? Well, as we said, less frequent dosing. Oops. So one of the candidate compounds in this class is a new integrase called BIC. Tegravir. It is active against viruses with resistance to some of the currently approved integrase inhibitors, and that's what's shown in this graph. So we're looking at IC50 fold change, so the higher the bar, the more resistance. And the four listed here in blue is raltegravir, in orange, alvitegravir, in green is dolutegravir, and then the new compound, bictegravir, is in yellow. And you can't read this, but these are um, mutations 
of integrase inhibitor viral strains. So you can see there's one mutation, two mutations, and three mutations. By the time you get to three, you can see widespread resistance to RAL and LVI, with dolutegravir retaining some activity, although some strains now showing resistance. And then bictegravir has a suggestion of more activity, even with resistant viral strains. This compound has a, a long half-life as well of 18 hours, so it can be given once daily. Importantly, no PK boosting is required, so it doesn't need a second agent. This compound neither inhibits nor induces CYP3A or glucuronidation, which as you know is one of the mechanisms for metabolism of the other integrase inhibitors, so has a low potential for drug interactions. Uh, the phase one data was published earlier this year by Joel Gallant showing activity of bictegravir. Paul Sachs published a smaller phase two study showing comparable virologic activity to dolutegravir earlier this year. And what's new here is we now have the phase three data for bictegravir. There were two studies that were presented at IAS and then subsequently published in The Lancet. Um, this one by Joel Gallant. So this is a phase three study, double-blind, active, controlled. It enrolled over 600 treatment-naive people with detectable viral loads, adequate renal function, so they were required to have a GFR over 50, and they were required to be HLA B5701 negative, so you can guess where we're going with that in terms of the back of error. So they, uh, again, received a co-formulated pill with TAF, FTC and bictegravir all in one pill versus the standard abacavir 3TC dolutegravir all in one pill. Everybody took two pills because it was blinded. What you see here is the 48 weeks, the suppression to below 50 rate, and it's 92 to 93% of all people on the study were suppressed on these integrase inhibitors. This is uh, virologic failure. You can see really low rates. And then you can see the lower confidence interval is about minus 5%. So that fulfills the criteria for non-inferiority. So bictegravir, non-inferior to dolutegravir on this study. Adverse events profile is shown for you here. You can't really read it, but common adverse events were not different between the two arms, with the exception of nausea which was 10% with the BIC and 22% with the dolutegravir arm. The companion study to this was also presented in Paris by Paul Sachs, very similar design. So phase three, treatment naive, over 600 patients. They were randomized again to TAF, FTC, BIC, all in one pill, versus the comparator this time was TAF, FTC, one pill, plus dolutegravir, because as you know, those are not co-formulated. So in this study, everyone took three pills. And again, here are the results. Week 48, if you look at the strict intent to treat analysis, you see about 90% of all people were suppressed below detection, low rates of virologic failure, and once again, the criteria for non-inferiority were met. So bictegravir in this study, non-inferior to dolutegravir. When you looked at adverse events, there were no differences between the two regimens with this nuke backbone, and uh, adverse events leading to study discontinuation was uncommon.
common. So Bictegravir, these two big registrational studies under consideration at the FDA right now. The other integrase inhibitor that you now know has not completed phase three testing yet is cabotegravir. So this is a compound that's similar to dolutegravir and has a similar resistance pattern. We know that in an oral formulation, it showed potency at these doses. So low doses, milligram doses, showed potent antiviral activity. But the excitement about this compound is the nanotechnology formulation, which allows parenteral dosing. And that has an exceedingly long half-life, 21 to 50 days. So that allows very infrequent dosing. It supports either monthly or bi-monthly or perhaps even quarterly dosing. And that would be perhaps a step forward in our field. In the early studies, the safety considerations were limited to injection site reactions, which were mostly mild and decreased over time. Uh, this is in contrast to those of you who remember the T20 injection site reaction. So these are not the same. Here is the most recent data that was presented by Joe Eron at the Paris IAS meeting. It's called the LATTE2 study, which sounds pretty good right now. And uh, that was a study of an all intramuscular, so an injectable parenteral regimen for suppression. Uh, this was a phase two, so smaller study. It was non-inferior. It enrolled over 300 treatment-naive studies, and they had a roll-in period with an oral formulation. So you can imagine if you're gonna give a long-acting preparation that's around for months, you wanna make sure first that people are gonna tolerate it in case there are side effects. So they put everyone on oral cabotegravir and oral abacavir 3TC and went for four weeks. And if they were suppressed, and most were, then they were randomized two to two to one to the three arms of the study, which don't come out all that well here, but one is IM-CAB and IM-Rilpivirine, so the non-nucleoside that's available in an investigational IM form, given every other month, IM-CAB plus Rilpivirine given every four weeks, or the one you can't see there is continuing the oral regimen. So here's the graph, less than 50, it's a little blurry, but uh, almost everyone suppressed on the oral triple drug with cabotegravir. And then you can see the three arms of the study virtually overlap. So almost everyone maintained suppression through the end of 96 weeks, two years of follow-up. And you can see the percentages are somewhere between 84 and 94% of people suppressed on an all-parenteral regimen given either monthly or every other month. The conclusion was that the IM preparation is non-inferior or comparable to the oral and that it was well tolerated. There were some subsequent data showing a few failures in the every other month dosing, so they elected to go in phase three, which are uh, being conducted right now, they ended up going with the every four week dose, although I think they will continue to explore every other month dosing as well. Would this be of benefit to some people, an all injectable regimen given monthly? I think we could all think of people who might benefit from that. What about side effects? Uh, injection site reactions were nearly universal. Almost all were mild to moderate. They lasted a median of three days and only two people on the whole study discontinued because of that side effect. So it seems reasonably well tolerated. 
If cabotegravir injectable works for treatment, what about for prevention? So same idea, a less frequently administered non-oral prevention regimen. So Rafi Landowitz from uh, UCLA presented these results at, in Paris. It's from the HIV Prevention Trials Network. This was a phase two study, double-blind placebo-controlled, so it's really looking at safety and tolerability of an injectable cab, this time for prevention. They enrolled low-risk HIV-negative participants, you can see just under 200, uh, median age of 31, two-thirds were women, one-third men, and they were randomized three to one to either oral cab for four weeks and then cab given IM 800 milligrams every three months or 600 milligrams every two months with a matching placebo. The injection site reactions were more common with cabotegravir, 34% than placebo, 2%. No other differences in safety tolerability. And ultimately, the pharmacokinetics said that the CAB 800 every 12-week regimen showed lower drug troughs. And so that suggested that they should move forward with every two-month dosing compared to every three-month dosing. And that was the conclusion of the study. That leads to the phase three study of cabotegravir for prevention. And this is a study that's currently up and running. It's gonna enroll over 4,500 <clears throat> adult MSM and transgender women um, at high risk for HIV acquisition based on risk factors. And the design of the study is TDF-FTC standard PrEP regimen, one a day orally, versus the comparator is cabotegravir given by injection every other month, so every two months. It's double-blinded, so everybody gets pills and everybody gets injections, but there's no all-placebo arm. And this is a fully-powered non-inferiority study to say, could an injectable regimen protect as well as the FDA-approved PO, one pill once a day regimen? Did I mention that it's now enrolling? I think I did. Uh, there are five sites here in New York, close to you. So there's one in the Bronx, one in Harlem. Uh, for you New Jersey people, there's one in Newark. NYBC is the New York Blood Center on the Upper East Side. And oh, look, our site is there, Cornell Chelsea. <laughs> so it's our site in Chelsea, which is on 23rd Street between 5th and 6th. And oh, look, our phone number's there too. 746-7198. So if you have anyone that's interested in PrEP, um, they could call and find out more about the study. By the way, if someone's on PrEP right now by prescription, they are eligible for the study as well. Okay, question two, break out that phone again. Which of the following investigational HIV drug classes is furthest along in development? Is it a capsid inhibitor, a CD4 attachment inhibitor, a CXCR4 antagonist, or a maturation inhibitor? Drug class, new drug class that's farthest along. Wow. I didn't know our faculty was so talented. That was really good. Okay. You're wrong. <laughs> okay, it's not the maturation inhibitor. The one farthest along is the CD4 attachment inhibitor. I know why you chose that, and uh, I'll review the data. It turns out the maturation inhibitor, the one you're thinking of, was actually stopped 
in further development. So let's review. The first thing to say is we have two kinds of entry inhibitors right now. Uh, a new mechanism of action would offer hope to people that we're following right now who are treatment experienced and have multidrug resistant virus. And then more convenient dosing, again, could be an option. So remember the entry in steps of HIV binds to the CD4 receptor, that's step one, then binds to the co-receptor, that's step two, and then the membranes fuse, that's step three. Of course, we have a co-receptor binder approved, that's Maraviroc, and we have a fusion inhibitor approved too, that's Infuvertide or T20, but the one mechanism we haven't had is something that inhibits CD4 binding. There are two candidate compounds in this class. One is Fostemzivir, and that binds to GP120, preventing CD4 binding. And the second is a monoclonal antibody called ibilizumab, which binds to the second domain of the CD4 receptor and prevents conformational changes that lead to co-receptor binding. So they're both essentially affecting the first step in HIV entry. And we have clinical data on both of these compounds. So fostemzivir is an oral HIV attachment inhibitor. It's broken down to the active compound, temzivir, and as mentioned, it inhibits CD4 binding by binding to GP120. Pharmacokinetics support once daily dosing without boosting. The early phase one data showed, this is dose escalation, that uh, 10 days of dosing was accompanied by about a 1.5 log drop in virus, showing that this new mechanism of action has virologic activity. Interesting though, 12% of people enrolled on that small study showed no effect at all, and it turns out they had polymorphisms in GP120 that rendered resistance to fostemzivir. We learned about drug interactions. Recently, there were no interactions with oral contraceptives and no significant interactions with methadone or buprenorphine. Here's the phase two data. Um, this enrolled treatment experience patients over 250, put them on a novel backbone of RAL and TDF, and then fostemzivir at four doses or the comparator arm was boosted at azanavir. And at 48 weeks, you can see roughly 70% of all people were suppressed. And then they showed us the week 96 data, and it's about 50 to 60% of people suppressed. Those numbers are lower than we're used to seeing, but there were significant dropouts from the study. Unclear why that was. Um, FDA breakthrough status was granted, and there's a very large phase three treatment experience study that's fully enrolled, and we anticipate the results. This study enrolled significantly treatment experienced, so we wait to hear that. Ibilizumab, as mentioned, is a monoclonal antibody, so it does have to be given parenterally. It binds to the CD4 receptor, but does not affect its function and does not interfere with binding. It's uh, dosed every one to four weeks. It's been around for a while, has been gone through phase one and phase two testing. The one perhaps of most interest um, was a study of triple class resistant patients, just over 100, um, who then took ibilizumab at one of two doses and then optimized their background regimens. And when they did that, you can see that up to 40% resuppressed uh, with the addition of ibilizumab. That supported moving forward with a phase three dosing. And uh, that's shown for you here. Now realize the FDA changed the rules 
about phase three dosing for treatment experienced patients. And they did that to try to reduce monotherapy exposure, because as we know, that leads to rapid resistance. So a phase three study for treatment experienced patients in HIV is now 40 people, okay, small, with detectable viral loads, heavy cl triple class resistance, they had to have at least one sensitive drug here. And the design of the study was that they continued their failing regimen, got a dose of ibilizumab, a loading dose of 2,000 milligrams at day seven. The primary endpoint is change in viral load at day 14. And so here's a, the percent of people showing a one log drop, and it was over 50%. Again, showing that ibilizumab is associated with significant virologic activity. They went on to allow people to optimize their background. They continued ibilizumab injections at a lower dose every two weeks, and we heard the week 24 results. So giving ibilizumab and then optimizing the background led to resuppression in 43% of the patients. And then hot off the press are the week 48 results. These were just presented at ID week. And uh, what they showed was of people continuing, close to 90% um, continued, and about 60% were able to suppress long-term. So ibilizumab offers a new, mechani new mechanism of action and should be, with an optimized background, a nice choice for people with heavily drug-resistant virus. Okay, many of you voted for the maturation inhibitor. That acts on one of the last steps of HIV. So when HIV buds off, its proteins are in the form of long precursors. These have to be specifically cut by the HIV protease, and then that results in maturation of the virus. Of course, we know how to inhibit the protease with a protease inhibitor. The other way to do it is to bind two of these polyproteins together, and that's how the maturation inhibitors work. So this is an attractive new mechanism of action. But as I hinted, what we heard in Paris was that the one farthest along in development did show virologic suppression, but had unacceptable GI toxicity. So after phase two, that compound was stopped from further development. The good news is there are a bunch more maturation inhibitors which are available for testing. So this isn't the last we will hear from this class. And then a new mechanism of action is a capsid inhibitor. So what's that? Well, when HIV buds off, it has to form something called the capsid, which if you remember, that's what encases the viral genetic material, the viral RNA. So this interesting group of compounds inhibits the formation of the capsid, but also when HIV enters the cell, the capsid has to break up to release the contents of the viral particle into the cell, and it acts there too. So it inhibits the capsule from, capsid from forming, and it inhibits the capsid from breaking apart. So it's actually targeting two steps with the capsid, and those are going to enter human studies as well. So I'll stop there. We did a whirlwind tour of new compounds for HIV, and thanks for your attention. That's Dave Thomas. Thanks very much, Tripp. That was a fantastic tour through the new uh, HIV medications. So we have some time to ask Tripp questions and to, uh, I guess, put this in context, Tripp. I'll, I'll start out with, so imagine we're a year from now and imagine that nothing unexpected happens with the FDA. 
and we have these. How does the guideline, how do the guidelines change? What, how's this going to change the way we uh, treat patients? Yeah, that's a great question. I can't comment on how the guidelines would change, so I can only comment on what I think. How will your approach <clears throat> to treatment change? So I think our biggest need right now are options for people with multi-drug resistant HIV. And I'd like to ask you guys, let's use hands this time. How many of you are taking care of someone who's resistant to all 29 drugs? Raise your hand. Okay, so only 6% of you. See, that's... Um, that's reassuring, and I ask that question wherever I go, all over the world, and it's always 6% wherever we go. <laughs> Funny how that happens. Um, we, you know, being a referral center in town and a reputation for doing this kind of work, we are hearing about patients here and there, but this is not a widespread problem. But we do need options for those patients. So of all the drugs that I mentioned, which ones really offer hope to people with multi-drug resistant virus? And the two are ibilizumab, because it works a different way, and fostemzivir, because it works a different way too. And we'd love to have two drugs to give these patients, because if you just give them one, they'll quickly develop resistance. So I think those are the two that I really have my eye on. The other ones, Bictegravir is an interesting in integrase inhibitor, right, because it's going to co-formulate TAF FTC and BIC all in one pill and no booster. So that perhaps is a step ahead of the mm -hmm. compounds that we have today. Does it really make a difference if you have one pill versus two pills? You know, some people care, so that might be. The one maybe that's questionable is deraverine. Like, do we really need another co-formulated non-nucleoside? And I think what people have their eye on there is less side effects, but also maybe cost will be cheaper. Um, I don't know, maybe. So, I mean, by the way, please come up if you, if you have a question. There's two mics on the, at the end of each aisle. You can uh, also write your question on a card and we'll, we'll bring it up, please. I guess uh, I have a question about the true convenience of once a week or once a month dosing, because I think people can either forget or they schedule something and then they can't make it, so they delay it a few days. Although the one study where there were three arms, they did look similar. There was the one oral and then once a month and every other month. Yeah, great question. Um, does once a week or once a month dosing really lend itself to clinical practice and will it help people? Uh, you know, in the old days, we used to say one pill once a day, that's the holy grail. We can't do better than that. When people talked about every other day dosing, if you've ever tried it yourself, it's always confusing. You're always like, did I take it? Did I not take it? Um, I would think once a week dosing would really be of benefit. How many of you agree with that? Raise your hand. Oh, people like that. They're the ones that knew it was Friday. <laughs> it was 87% voted for that. Um, I'm just gonna keep rolling out that joke too. Um, but I agree with you, the difficulty is if you miss it, particularly those monthly injections, if you're late or you don't show up at all, then what happens? It, it's a problem. The clinical study showed good results, but remember on these studies, you've got nurse coordinators calling the patient saying, you know, come in for your injection. So it might be a bit of a double-edged sword. I, I guess we'll have to see how it goes. Um, I think the benefit is uh, with the parenteral regimens that you could tie it to something else. So maybe methadone maintenance programs would be a good place or other ways to, to administer it. So we're entering a new world, I think, with these less frequent, long-acting compounds. 
over here, and you can write your questions down the cards, pass them into the side, and they'll bring them up. That's what I wanted to ask about the uh, carbotegravir uh, injectable with the real pivoting. I guess it was about 86% were undetectable. Did we ever find anything with the 14%? Did we see if they stopped the drug? Was there any resistance down the line? Because I think that's the concern is that you give the injection, if the person totally falls out of care, is it going to be like single-dose nevirapine? You know, they're definitely going to fail, or do we have any idea yet? So you're, you're asking a great question. The, if you miss a dose of cabotegravir, the cabotegravir after a single injection, we now know that the levels can last as long as a year or in something around 15%. They will still have detectable levels even a year later. So the worry that was brought up previously is if you give this injection and it lasts for a very long time and then you don't give the next one, might you select out resistant virus there? That wasn't seen on the studies. Um, and what you saw there, the, the percentages I showed were people completely suppressed, so there right. were some that weren't completely suppressed, but they didn't see the emergence of resistance All right, thanks. commonly. I guess there were a couple cases in the, ev the every eight weeks, and that's why they turned away from the every eight week dosing. And before we leave that topic, one <clears> of the <throat> questions written was, well, the, is the intent that these be given at home or that you come into a facility for the, what, what do you think, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I, I don't know yet. Cabotegravir is um, a biggish volume of injection and it needs to be given um, in the butt, gluteally, gluteally, so that's hard to do by yourself. <laughs> don't try this at home. Um, so you, it may need to be facility administered. I think the goal would be if it can be given IM, then can you switch to a sub-Q formulation, which would be lend itself more easily to people giving it to themselves? But we don't know yet. I, I'm interested in more details about the drive ahead and drive forward, mm -hmm. particularly the side effects and if the difference seen could have been informed consent influenced of the, particularly the, the mental health insomnia types of things that showed up in one and not the other. So you mean that if you tell people you might have vivid dreams or feel dizzy or feel sleepy that they tend to report that more? Yeah, I think that's true. So when we, we all know this from clinic, right? If you tell people, okay, I'm gonna prescribe a Favarins and this might give you vivid dreams, people can be suggestible and have vivid dreams. How many of you had a vivid dream last <laughs> night? I had a really vivid dream, but we're not gonna go into it. So, what? so yeah, I, I take your point. When you tell people, oh, this side effect happens in 50% of people, you know, you can induce people to tell you that they had the side effect. One of the 6% uh, with highly resistant patients wants to know if there are enrolling trials for those kinds of patients right now. Yeah, thanks. I've gotten that question uh, now and then. Currently, there are not because the ones that I mentioned, Ibilizumab, the phase three da uh, data is in the can. The FDA is committed to making a decision on that drug by January. So we will know that. And again, you just saw the data. If you were the FDA, you'd say, wow, that offers virologic activity. We should approve that drug. So I'm guessing they're going to approve that. Fostemzivir, which recently was in a clinical trial, it's fully enrolled. So there are no open trials for people with multi-drug resistance right at the moment. We're sort of waiting for these two compounds, I think. 
coming soon, hopefully, will be the maturation inhibitors and the capsid inhibitors. And we'll have to see how they design those studies, but they would offer hope because new mechanisms of action. Any, I don't know if I understand this one, but are, have any prominent politicians taken maturation inhibitors? <laughs> So. Okay, thanks very much, Trip. <laughs> that one took me a minute, okay. <laughs> Clearly not. I mean, <laughs> all right, well, thanks very much, Trip, for that. Sorry about that. All right, Dave Thomas made that up because it's not here on the question cards. That was brilliant. <laughs> We love those Baltimore uh, Morians. <laughs>